You're listening to CSN International, your home for the latest praise and worship music and solid Bible teaching. In just a moment, we're going to join a study from the River Christian Fellowship, the home of CSN. But first, I'd like to invite you to come out and join us in person. We're located in Twin Falls, Idaho, and have our Sunday morning service at 10 a.m. Mountain Time and Sunday and Wednesday evening services at 7 p.m. Mountain Time. Visit theriverchristianfellowship.com and click on the map for directions or to schedule a visit. We're glad you're tuned in and hope you enjoy today's verse-by-verse study recorded live during one of our Wednesday or Sunday services. Now let's join the teaching already underway. Good evening, everybody. I decided to start tonight with a, on a kind of depressing note, so you know, let's just get going into that. I mean, if you think uh, from a purely objective, logical standpoint, only seeing what's right in front of you without any supernatural, just what we experience and see on a daily basis, our lives make no sense. If all, if we just look at what's in front of us, our lives don't make any logical sense. Why we're here, why we keep going on, uh, what we're even doing here. But, even that, okay, that, that's a conclusion we could come to with just looking at what's in front of us. We have something deep within our bones, deep within our consciousness, that doesn't allow us to act on that point of view. Because we keep going, even if, Logically, again, just looking once in front of us, it doesn't make any sense. We keep going. So we don't, there's something within us that causes us not to really act on that sort of observation that we make. Because we keep living, even though it doesn't make sense. Logically, we keep trying. We keep scraping by. We keep fighting. We do our best to exist. And see, if we're thinking now and questioning that, why we would continue to go on despite the purposelessness of everything, just looking at what's in front of us from our limited perspective, is that all of us, whether we would admit it or not, we have hope. And that's why we don't act on this thing we see in front of us that it looks like there's no purpose to anything. No matter what we may say we believe about our big purpose in life, if we continue on, we have not really acted upon that. We just continue because we all have hope. That's why we keep moving on. But the problem is then, we need hope. Without hope, there's no reason to continue. So we all have hope. We all need hope. So this is just like a basic need that we have. So we need to drink so there's water that fulfills that need. We need to eat. So there's food that fulfills that need. We need hope. So we need a source that fulfills that need. Now there's society here always trying to make a, make a dollar with something. We'll try to sell hope to you because this is just a fundamental need we all have is we need a hope. We need a reason to keep going when it doesn't seem like there's a point to anything. So they'll try to sell hope to you. And it's, it's very enticing because we need this. But there's not an obvious source for it, like there is water for being thirsty. So do you not like the way that you look? Well, then they'll say, you know, there's hope for you. You can buy makeup. You can even get surgery. There's some hope for you to change that about you. They'll try to sell you hope. Do you not like your weight? Well, there's hope for you. There's dieting pills. There's surgeries to take care of that. There's P90X and you know all the things that'll try to sell you hope if you're not feeling hope in that. Do you, like even something as simple as not liking your teeth. 
Well, there's hope for you. They got crest white strips and anything that they can sell you to give you hope that you can change your smile. Do you want a a partner, a spouse, a boyfriend, a girlfriend? Well, there's hope for you. You can get a membership on a dating site and find someone uh, who has similar interests, even farmers only. I mean, they got something for everyone. Uh, Are you a jerk? Well, there isn't really hope for that. I mean, that's, that's the thing. Yeah. You see, and here's the thing that we're all a jerk and society won't even try to sell us on that. They won't even say, here's how you can fix yourself. But what they do sell you so you have hope, even though we're all jerks, is here's a ton of stuff that can numb you to how terrible you are. That's what they try to sell you. So, you know, here's some TV shows. Here's some movies. Here's some video games. Here's some alcohol. Here's some drugs. Here's social media. So you can numb yourself to this feeling you have that you know you're kind of a jerk and you can't change it, but at least I can numb myself to it. So we, it's, you know, this need we have of hope without an obvious source to fulfill it. So people come in and try to sell it to you, taking advantage of that. So we're obsessed with hope. Do we buy into these things? These things give us hope. I'm going to buy it and Maybe you'll give me the desire to continue on. We're obsessed with hope because we need it to live, and we don't know where exactly to find it if we just look at what's in front of us. See, before I was a Christian, I was an atheist. And here's, even as an atheist, I say, well, there's no God out there. And here's where my hope was, and I was really arrogant about this. Uh, like That maybe shock, doesn't shock anyone. Uh, I was very arrogant about this, that my hope was in hopelessness. I thought I was, you know, so clever because I got this figured out. You know, there is no God out there. It's hopeless, but that's what keeps me moving forward, that there's nothing else out there. It's, it's a weird thing. It made sense to me at the time. But we'll, we'll find a way to fulfill our hope need in any way, or else we're not going to keep moving forward. So we're going to talk about hope tonight in the book of Job. We're at Job chapter 15. And we're going to read Job 15, 16, and 17. Because Job is done with it. I mean, he doesn't have any hope left. That's what the conclusion he ends at tonight. So the backstory of Job, to fill us in, you might already know it, but Job was a righteous, upright, and blameless man, it says in Job chapter 1. And then Satan accuses Job. Well, God brings Satan up to Job, or brings Job up to Satan, and says, Have you considered my servant Job, that he is upright and blameless, and there's none like him on the earth? And Satan accuses Job and says that Job is only like that because you give him everything he wants. He has possessions, he has kids, he has a house. It says he's the greatest of the men of the, of the east. And Satan tells God, if you take that stuff away, he will curse you to your face. Does God, or does Job love you for no reason is what he says. So God gives Satan permission to take that stuff from Job. Job loses all of his possessions, all of his servants, all of his house, and even his kids die. So then Satan shows back up to God, and God says, did you see Job? Well, before that, Job says, the Lord gives, the Lord takes away, blessed be the name of the Lord. He never cursed God with wrongdoing. He never blamed God for, you know, killing even his kids. And God points that out to Satan, says again, Job didn't do what you said he would do when you took that away. And Satan says to God, well, obviously, he still has his health. Take that away, he'll curse you to your face. God tells Satan, go ahead, take away his health. See what he does. So Satan does that. His skin is covered in boils. He's a, people make fun of him. People spit in his face. He talks about in these chapters. But still, Job says, we can't 
accept good from God, if we won't also accept bad, he never cursed God with wrongdoing. Now that's the background situation here. And that, we need to remember that one, that why I keep bringing this up in case you missed any of this. Because if we forget that, we kind of fall into the same traps as Job's friends. So Job has three friends that show up who try to comfort him after all these things happen to him. And they try to come up with explanations for why this happened. And their basic explanation is, Job, you did something wrong. You deserved all this to happen to you. you got to figure out what that is and change it, and then everything will be good again. And there's variations on their argument. That's basically what they said. They say, Job argues against them, saying, No, I haven't been sinful. I've been righteous and upright and blameless and all these things. He doesn't buy their argument. And so they have this argument about, why has God done this to Job? And at this point, they've been arguing now for a while. Um, each of the friends have brought up a point, and now we're back to the first friend tonight, Eliphaz, bringing up his second argument. And this is where Job, where he's at tonight, is well, it's where he's been throughout the thing, but he says it straight up. I have no hope. And he talks about, see, his friend is going to show him some false hope. He gives him some places where you, you know, where there, it's false hope. Job is going to counter that with all the places that he's lost his hope from, which is what has led him to feel hopeless. And then we'll finish up with, well, where do we get true hope from? I mean, spoiler, it's Jesus, but we'll be more specific about that as we get to it and pull this all together. So what we'll see tonight in these three chapters is that because this world will not give us hope, we need to get our hope from outside this world, from God. Because this world only lets us down. So let's start in Job chapter 15. Well, actually, let's go back in 14 a little bit for the context. Because we'll finish, we read this last week about how Job ended his point, and that decides how Eliphaz responds to him. So actually start in verse uh, verse 18 of chapter 14. Job speaking, he says, But as a mountain falls and crumbles away, and as a rock is moved from its place, as water wears away stones, and as torrents wash away the soil of the earth, so you, meaning God, destroy the hope of man. You prevail forever against him, and he passes on. You change his countenance and send him away. His sons come to honor, and he does not know it. They are brought low, and he does not perceive it. But his flesh will be in pain over it, and his soul will mourn over it. So we ended that last week with Job. He just said, God, in verse 19, So you, God, destroy the hope of man. The way he sees God now is God is, it's kind of like he erodes people's hope away. That he just keeps pressing on people and keeps hurting them and things keep getting taken away and God destroys the hope of man. So he's already said, I have no, like God isn't giving me hope right now because if I believe in an omnipotent God, I have to also believe that he allowed my kids to die in the situation he's in. So he's not getting any hope from God right now. And now, so Eliphaz responds with false hope. And the first thing he's going to tell him is, Job, just pretend like everything is okay. That's basically what he says next. So let's go into chapter 15. Then Eliphaz the Temanite answered and said, Should a wise man answer with empty knowledge and fill himself with the east wind? Should he reason with unprofitable talk or by speeches with which he can do no good? Yes, you cast off fear and restrain prayer before God. For your iniquity teaches your mouth, and you choose the tongue of the crafty. Your own mouth condemns you and not I. Yes, your own lips testify against you. 
He's always saying, Job, just pretend like everything's okay. I know you have no hope right now. You said God has destroyed all your hope. But let's just pretend like it's okay. That's his advice to him. He says in verses 2 and 3, your, your responses are dumb, Job. Just listen to what I'm telling you. Because verse 4 here is the key, what he's saying. Yes, you cast off fear and restrain prayer before God. And what he's telling him is to Job, you do not fear God enough. See, Job has some legit, legit complaints. I don't know how to say I can't say that word without saying it that way too. It's just a thing. Uh, Job has some legit complaints against God. It's, again, his kids have died. His house has been destroyed. His possessions are gone. I think he has some reason to complain to God and sort of even say to God, you've destroyed all my hopes. But Eliphaz says, you, you just don't fear God enough. And then he says in verse 5, Your iniquity teaches your mouth, and you choose the tongue of the crafty. By the words coming out of your mouth, I know you've done something wrong. You wouldn't be saying stuff like this unless you've done something wrong. Unless there's something wrong in your relationship with God. Because no good Christian person would say something like, God is destroying my hopes. But that's what he's getting at. Job, just pretend like it's okay. You have no reason to say that God has taken away your hope. You don't fear God enough. That's why your prayer is restrained and your mouth just proves there's something wrong with you. See, sometimes we think this is our hope. Just pretend like it's okay. Just keep moving on and say everything is okay. We have no right to complain. See, and the worst really is, I mean, we could expect that out of non-believers maybe, I mean, because you don't have a lot of options here. But as Christians, this is a lot of times our hope. And this is a false hope. Let's just pretend like it's okay. Let's just keep moving forward. There's not really a problem here. This is, this is all I got. My life is going down the toilet, but all things work out for good. Am I right? I mean, it's, it's that just let's just pretend it's okay and keep moving on. But that's a false hope. Let's not put our hope there. We have better than that as Christians. That's a false hope to pretend like it's okay. And then... Now, as we continue, Eliphaz tells him, just pretend like it's okay. Not only that, let's, you know, put your hope in some religious platitudes. We'll talk about that in a minute. So verse 7. Are you the first man who was born? Or were you made before the hills? Have you heard the counsel of God? Do you limit wisdom to yourself? What do you know that we do not know? What do you understand that is not in us? Both the gray-haired and the aged are among us, much older than your father. Are the consolations of God too small for you? And the word spoken gently with you? Why does your heart carry you away? And what do your eyes wink at? That you turn your spirit against God and let such words go to your mouth? He's, he tells Job, you don't know what you're talking about. Like, you don't have any wisdom. You're not the first guy who's born. We're a lot older than you. We're a lot smarter than you. Just listen to us. Trust us. And verse 11 is the religious platitude part. He says, are the consolations of God too small for you and the words spoken gently with you? And what he's saying is, what we're saying to help you, is that too small for you? Is that not good enough for you, Job? All these things we're telling you that'll help you? Now let's remember, though, just review what his friends have essentially told him after all this stuff has happened to him. First, Eliphaz shows up and tells him, he spends about three verses comforting him, and then he goes right to, well, Job, you reap what you sow. This all happened because you did something bad, and so now God is doing bad things to you. Then the other friend, Bildad, comes up and basically just tells him to try harder. 
Job, try harder. You can be better than this. And then his third friend, Zophar, comes up to him and says, well, you know what, Job, you deserve this. Actually, you deserve much worse. See, these have been the things they're, they're trying to tell a friend who is in need. And is this not enough for you, Job? Aren't these little sayings we're throwing out to you, aren't these enough for you? Just try harder, just keep pushing on, all things work out for good. And I think just about every week we've talked about the idea of religious platitudes. It's thought-ending cliches that we just say to hope shut the conversation down because we really don't know what to say. I don't think we're trying to be mean, but we just say things like, well, I'll pray for you, all things work out for good, just kind of end the conversation. And that's what his friends have been saying. Just figure out what's wrong, repent, and it's going to be a million times better than it used to be. And now he's saying, is that not good enough for you, Job? All this stuff we've been telling you? So he's telling him, put your hope in that religious platitude. In these little sayings we say that aren't really, you know, taking the Bible out of context, that don't really mean anything taken out of their context, but just put your hope in that. Now, Christians, we don't need to put our hope in religious platitudes. Here's what I mean. I mean, sometimes I wonder about the, where people are putting their hope. And, I mean, you can have a Bible verse on every coffee mug in your house and like a Pinterest wall full of Bible verses with like landscapes behind them and just like Bible verses everywhere, but never read the Bible, don't know anything about God's promises. I just got this nice Bible verse on my coffee mug. You know, that gives me hope. But pulling that out of its context, that's not, it's almost always like not the, the right thing. And it's not having an understanding of what God's actual promises are, what he actually says in his word, which is so much better than a verse on a coffee mug. Yeah, there's nothing f- wrong with verses on coffee mugs. I have a bunch of them. But I'm saying if that's like the extent of your Bible knowledge is the verse on your coffee mug and the stuff you pinned on Pinterest and liked on Facebook without ever reading God's word and knowing his promises, that's false hope. That's putting your hope in just these little sayings we say, pulling verses out of context. I go to church once in a while. I try to do good. I got Bible verses all up on my profile. I like them every time I see them. So I'm probably okay. That's not, that's not what being a Christian is about, is coffee mugs with Bible verses. See, the problem with that is it means we have no understanding of God's entire redemptive history. It's not... About you, it's about Jesus and his love for you. And so just saying, here's a religious platitude. Here's a little thing we say. Put your hope in that. We don't need to do that. We have better than a coffee mug. We have like a whole 2,000 page book that has a ton of stuff God tells us that we sometimes ignore just for the little verse out of context. So then he goes on. Well, he said, yeah, is this too small for you? Does this mean nothing to you, Job, these little things we say? And then he tells them, essentially, well, put your hope in, you must deserve it. It's verse 14. What is man that he could be pure, and he who is born of a woman that he could be righteous? If God puts no trust in his saints, and the heavens are not pure in his sight, how much less man who is abominable and filthy, who drinks iniquity like water? You see, this is, it's kind of, contradictory but so many of us put our hope in this we put our hope in that whatever bad is happening to us we must have deserved it who is he who is born of woman that he could be righteous if god puts no trust in his saints and the heavens aren't pure he's not going to give you anything good you don't deserve it and a lot of times we have that attitude like yeah you know what this happened to me something terrible something bad happened because i must deserve it And that's a way of putting your hope in hopelessness. 
just accepting, you know, like my kid died, whatever happened, we had a miscarriage, we're going through a divorce, I lost my job. It must happen, must have happened because I deserve it. That is false hope. Don't put your hope in that. We got better than that as Christians. And then he ends with the kind of the number one false hope we put. Just do better. I'll just try harder. Verse 17. I will tell you, hear me, what I have seen I will declare, what wise men have told, not hiding anything received from their fathers, to whom alone the land was given, and no alien passed among them. The wicked man writhes with pain all his days, and the number of years is hidden from the oppressor. Dreadful sounds are in his ears, in prosperity the destroyer comes upon him. He does not believe that he will return from darkness, for a sword is waiting for him. He wanders about for bread, saying, Where is it? He knows that a day of darkness is ready at his hand. Trouble and anguish make him afraid. They overpower him like a king ready for battle. For he stretches out his hand against God and acts defiantly against the Almighty, running stubbornly against him with his strong embossed shield. Though he has covered his face with his fatness and made his waist heavy with fat, he dwells in desolate cities, in houses which no one inhabits, which are destined to become ruins. He will not be rich, nor will his wealth continue, nor will his possessions overspread the earth. He will not depart from darkness. The flame will dry out his branches, and by the breath of his mouth he will go away. Let him not trust in futile things, deceiving himself, for futility will be his reward. It will be accomplished before his time, and his branch will not be green. He will shake off his unripe grape like a vine, and cast his blossom like an olive tree. For the company of hypocrites will be barren, and fire will consume the tents of bribery. They conceive trouble and bring forth futility. Their womb prepares deceit. So let's think about what Eliphaz's friend is telling Job here. He's being very subtle, you know, very religious, kind of hypocritical about it. He's talking about, here's what happens to wicked people. He says, the wicked man rides with pain all his days. Well, if you're Job, you've got to be thinking, I'm writhing with pain all my days. He's saying, the wicked man rides with pain. What's he saying about me? Oh, I'm a wicked guy. Okay, got it, Eliphaz. Thank you. He says, the wicked guy does not believe that he will return from darkness. Job just said that a couple chapters ago. I'm not going to return from the darkness. What's he saying about me? Oh, I'm a wicked man. See, he's just kind of subtly getting at, here's what happens to wicked people. Connect the dots, Job. That's happening to you. You must be a wicked person. You need to do better. I mean, it's all through his argument. Trouble and anguish make wicked people afraid. Job said how much he's troubled and how much anguish he's having. Oh, he thinks I'm wicked. I mean, that's that's what he's saying. It's very subtle, kind of religious. I'm not going to say it, but I'm going to hint at it. You must have done something wrong. You're this wicked guy. Figure it out, Job. And if you want any hope, you're just going to have to do better than you've done. God is punishing you for what you've done. He's saying, you know, this all happened to you, Job, because you're the wicked guy. Fix what's wrong with you. Everything will be okay again. Put your hope in that. Just try to be better. And that, like I said, that's what most people's hope is. I'm just going to try harder. I'm going to do better. Tomorrow's a new day. Let's just, you know, I'll I'll do better this time. Which might help a little bit. But that's going to run out. That hope is a false hope. That's not going to sustain you through an entire life. That's going to run dry. And that's why even, like I said, society knows they can't fix this about you. They know that they can't just come right up at you and say, here's what will fix what's wrong with you at your core. 
And they'll try to sell you things to numb that so you don't feel it. They'll try to sell you things to distract you from that truth. But they won't even try to tell you, we got something that can change you and fix you. Because they know that doesn't work. You can't just try harder and think it's going to work better because ourselves is the problem. If we're the problem, we can't also be the solution. And that's this false, like hamster on a treadmill. Let's just keep going, going, try harder next time. If this worked, we would have more hope. We as a society and as people, we'd have more hope if all you had to do is, you know, pull up your pants and keep going. It doesn't work. It's false hope. So Eliphaz, Job has said, God has destroyed all my hopes. Eliphaz says, well, put your hope here, Job. Um, <clears throat> here's some religious platitudes. Here's some Bible verses for you. Try to do better. You know, maybe you just deserve this and just pretend like everything is okay. The basic, generic, I don't really know what to say to you. I'm just going to say some stuff. But now we all need to ask, where are we putting false hope? We all do this. We all put our hope in something that's not going to sustain us. See, mine, just to get you thinking about yours, why I'm sharing mine, where I put my false hope so much is in my family. And especially in, I can be better. I can, well, it's really that last one. I can try harder. Then he says, people in general have let him down. Though I speak, my grief is not relieved. And if I remain silent, how am I eased? But now he has worn me out. You have made desolate all my company. You have shriveled me up, and it is a witness against me. My leanness rises up against, against me and bears witness to my face. He tears me in his wrath and hates me. He gnashes at me with his teeth. My adversary sharpens his gaze on me. They gape at me with their mouth. They strike me reproachfully on the cheek. They gather together against me. God has delivered me to the ungodly and turned me over to the hands of the wicked. See, all of his, his hopes are destroyed in people. People don't give him any hope anymore. He's saying, God has made him desolate of all, desolate of all of his company. His kids have died. His servants have died. His wife said, just forget about God and move on. There's no one left for him. Then he says, not only that, people gape at me with their mouth. When they look at him, they just stare in awe, in judgment. They strike him reproachfully on the cheek. They gather together against me. He says later, they spit in my face. People have let him down. He's lost all hope in people. And I don't think anything else is going to let you down more than this. It's people. Especially people you think shouldn't. Your parents, your spouse, your friends, they're the ones who are going to let you down the most. And you're going to let them down too. That's just the reality. Then he moves on. He's lost all hope in possessions. Verse 12, I was at ease, but he has shattered me. He also has taken me by my neck and shaken me to pieces. He has set me up for his target. His archers surround me. He pierces my heart and does not pity. He pours out my gall on the ground. He breaks me with wound upon wound. He runs at me like a warrior. He says in verse 12, I was at ease, but he has shattered me. He was the greatest of the men of the East. He had more possessions than anyone, more money. He lived a life of ease, and it has been shattered. His possessions, his household has been taken away. 
And the images here are very powerful. It says that God has picked him up by the neck and shaken him to pieces. He says that God is like, it's like I'm your target and God is sending arrows at me to hurt me. And since all your stuff can get taken away, that's a terrible place to put your hope. A life of ease is easily lost. Your possessions will let you down. And he goes on, verse 15, his emotions. I have sewn sackcloth over my skin and laid my head in the dust. My face is flushed from weeping and on my eyelids is the shadow of death. Although no violence is in my hands and my prayer is pure. See, in verse 15, this is a powerful picture. He says he's sewn sackcloth on his skin. Sackcloth is what they would wear when they were mourning. It was a type of outfit. And he's saying he's been crying. He's shed so many tears that he's sewn this to his skin. He's just always wearing sackcloth, figure of speech. He's laid his head in the dust and his face is flushed from weeping. On my eyelids is the shadow of death. He has cried and cried and cried and cried. It's not giving him more hope. Your emotions will let you down. Tears and emotion is is not going to take away the hopelessness, unfortunately. It may help. It might be part of the healing, but it's not going to take it away. Verse 18. O earth, do not cover my blood, and let my cry have no resting place. Surely even now my witness is in heaven, and my evidence is on high. My friends scorn me. My eyes pour out tears to God. Oh, that one might plead for a man with God as a man pleads for his neighbor. For when a few years are finished, I shall go the way of no return. Now he's starting to look in a good place for hope, but here's where he's, he's just a little off. He's talking about putting hope and knowledge about God. I mean, what he's saying here is his hope is that God would hear him and have mercy on him. But he just hopes for that. He hopes that someone would mediate for him, that someone could plead his case to God before him. But just knowing about God is going to let you down. Just this idea of thinking there's a God somewhere out there, and if I could just go to him and ask him what's going on, then he'd tell me everything. That's a difference between saving faith and knowing you have a mediator and a redeemer, which he gets into in the next section. So you want to be careful. Your knowledge about God is not, that's going to let you down. It's knowing the true and living God is where hope is found. And now let's go into chapter 17. Again, he talks about his friends letting him down. My spirit is broken. My days are extinguished. The grave is ready for me. Are not mockers with me? And does not my eye dwell on their provocation? Now put down a pledge for me with yourself. Who is he who will shake hands with me? For you have hidden in their heart from, for you have hidden their heart from understanding. Therefore you will not exalt them. He who speaks flattery to his friends, even the eyes of his children will fail. He says again how his friends have let him down. He's about to die, and his friends don't say anything helpful. Verse 6, But he has made me a byword of the people, and I have become one in whose face men spit. My eye has also grown dim because of sorrow, and all my members are like shadows. Upright men are astonished at this, and the innocent stirs himself up against the hypocrite. Yet the righteous will hold to his way, and he who has clean hands will be stronger and stronger. So again, he's just reiterating, people have let him down. They're spitting in his face. His emotions let him down. He's been crying. Yeah, those, no, no hope. Verse 10. But please come back again, all of you, 
For I shall not find one wise man among you. My days are past. My purposes are broken off. Even the thoughts of my heart, they change the night into day. The light is near, they say, in the face of darkness. See, he's lost all hope and false hope. And that's a good place to be. He's talking about this false hope that his friends are trying to throw at him. Just pretend like it's okay. Just trust in some random Bible verses. Uh, just keep moving on and try to be better. He said he's lost hope and false hope. He's saying that my days are past. My purposes are broken off. I'm about to die. I'm on the edge of death. And what my friends are saying, they change the night and the day. They're trying to tell me the light is near in the face of darkness. I mean, it's that false hope, like, just stick it out. You're almost to the, the it's darkest just before the dawn. Just keep moving ahead. He's saying, that doesn't, I'm not going to put my hope in that. That doesn't help. And then finally, verse 13, the last thing that's going to let him down is death. A death is also not a good place to put your hope. If I wait for the grave as my house, if I make my bed in the darkness, if I say to corruption, you are my father, and to the worm, you are my mother and my sister, where then is my hope? As for my hope, who can see it? Will they go down to the gates of Sheol? Shall we have rest together in the dust? If I just die, that's not hope in itself. So all these things have let him down. This world won't give you hope. So then where is true hope? I mean, we, we got to end here. This will be pretty bleak just ending right here. Where do we find true hope? Like I said, we see here everything in this world will let us down. We also know we need hope. Everybody does. We need real hope, not false hope. And if everything's going to let us down in this world, we need hope from outside of this world. That's the only hope that won't let us down. Let's read, if you'll turn, we'll end here. If you go towards the end of the Bible, to the book of 1 Peter. It's 1 Peter chapter 1. And we'll start at verse 3. It says, we'll go verses 3 through 9. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who according to his abundant mercy has begotten us again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance incorruptible and undefiled and that does not fade away, reserved in heaven for you, who are kept by the power of God through faith for salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while, if need be, you have been grieved by various trials, that the genuineness of your faith, being much more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to praise, honor, and glory at the revelation of Jesus Christ, whom having not seen, you love. Though now you do not see him, yet believing, you rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory, receiving the end of your faith, the salvation of your souls." Let's look at this for a minute because this is living hope. This is a hope that does not die with this world. A hope that is not sourced in this world. It's from outside of this world. This is a living hope and a true hope. What it says here, that God, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to His abundant mercy has begotten us again. That means God has fathered us. He has given us spiritual birth. He has made us spiritually alive. So we feel hopeless because we are spiritually dead. 
We're living it physically and mentally, but when we were born, we're spiritually dead because of sin. And that's what we need to give us hope. So we can't just say, oh, I'll buy this thing to physically change me. That's not going to give us hope. I'll buy this thing to emotionally change me. That's not going to give me hope. What I need is spiritual hope at the deepest part of my being. And God, that He has begotten us, has given birth to us spiritually, being born again. That's what Jesus talks about in John chapter 3. Because of His mercy... Because God looked on us in the sad state we are in and had mercy on us. It's our own fault we have no hope. He didn't design us to be without hope. He made us to be with Him. And we separated from Him because we chose to sin. But because of His mercy, He's given us a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Because Jesus died for our sin but rose again to show He defeated our sin. He defeated death. And because He rose... We will rise too. He is the first fruits. Now here's what he says where your hope is. To an inheritance incorruptible and undefiled and that does not fade away, reserved in heaven for you. If this is the living hope that you have a place reserved in God's kingdom out of this world, out of this hopeless world where God is king. You have a place on the new earth where he is going to get rid of hopelessness and we'll be face to face with hope. We'll be there with Jesus. We'll see God to his face where there's no sin and there's no hopelessness because we see him. And he's saying, you have a place reserved for you. You have a spot in that kingdom reserved for you. If you receive the inheritance that is there for you, it's undefiled. It does not fade away. It can't be taken away from you once you've been given it. So what Jesus' death and resurrection means is that you have a place in heaven for you. And what that means is you have a home and it's not here. And this is so important to understanding hope, to having hope, because our hope can't be in this world. It has to be in the one to come. The last summer, uh, my family, we went camping a couple times. Uh, Two times we went camping. Both times we just stayed for two nights because we have little kids and that's plenty with two little kids going camping. But I had this idea, we hadn't been camping in a long, long time, like we're not uh, super outdoorsy kinds of people, but I decided we need to go camping in a tent, because it's not really camping unless you're in a tent. So we got this really big tent that we could fit all of us in, uh, and we went up to the Sawtooth Mountains to go camping two different times for two nights. And I loved it, I mean we got to go you know, hiking and took the kids, we had to carry them most of the way, but you know that's alright, we toughed it out. It was a lot of fun, great bonding time. But there's also this downside of camping that happens really quickly when you got two little kids with you. After just two days of it. I mean, we, it's in Sawtooth and they say, you know, there's bears out there and you can't leave food out or bears are going to come. So we had two days worth of garbage in our van uh, that's poopy diapers and like grease from the grill and just like gar- garbage all over the back of our van. Kind of takes away the fun- the pleasantness a little bit. We had, I opened up the cooler. I packed some pork chops. Well, they they didn't really keep in there for two days. They were like gray and rotted and stinky. Just threw those out, put them in the van because that's our garbage. Um, Our kids got worms at one point. Probably one of the... Johnny, our little boy, just ate dirt. He like just straight up just putting dirt in his mouth. That's probably where he got the worms from. And yeah, it's great going camping, but we can't, you know, you leave... Because you're kind of wanting to do something different, get out of the routine. But it only took two days. Where I'm saying, man, I want to go back home. Like I'm excited 
to get back home. And we kind of do this thing where whenever we go on a trip, we usually gradually unpack over the course of like a week. We'll just take stuff out of, out of the bag as we need it. And, uh, when we got home from camping, like the second we got home, I'm taking stuff out of the van. Let's get unpacked. Let's get back home. Let's get back to the routine where it's so easy, where the kids will just sleep and they won't talk to us all night because they're not sharing a room. It's wanting, we wanted to go back there. And it was the, the going away, the being away from home and some of those difficulties that made us long for our home even more. See, if we don't know we have a home that we're longing for, we don't know what to do with this hopelessness. See, these, the diffi- if camping went perfectly great, I wouldn't have been as homesick. I wouldn't have been longing for home. And when we're in these hopeless situations, that's homesick. Whenever we're hurt and we don't know why things are going this way, that's being homesick for our real home where we have an inheritance, we have a spot in heaven reserved for us. It's not bad to be homesick. It makes you want to get there all the more. It makes you want to keep moving on. We're going to unpack right away because I want to be home. But the problem is kind of two different things with that. Well, some people you know, decide, well, I'm not going to go camp in the tent. That's too hard. I'm going to get an RV. And I'm going to have air conditioning, satellite TV, a fridge, and try to avoid the unpleasantness as much as possible. But that's not still your home. That's just pretending like everything's okay. And if you're refusing to look at this homesickness, you're not longing for the home that's waiting for you. If you're trying to make this world into your true home, you're not homesick for the one to come. You don't have the faith to get there. If you're just putting everything, all your eggs in the basket of this home, trying to make this home where we're just sojourners into an RV with satellite dish, it covers it, but it doesn't get rid of it. And that homesickness is a good thing. That's what I'm trying to say. It's good to feel homesick for our true home. Now, the other problem is some of us, we're just out camping and just say, we just got to suck it up. Yeah, this kind of sucks. My kids are getting worms. They're eating dirt. But what else is there? That's the problem with being too focused on this world. Hey, not understanding you have an inheritance that's waiting for you, that's reserved for you, that will not be taken away. We, a lot of times, get so focused here, we forget about that. And we have this homesickness, but don't know where to put it. We don't know where to put it in the living hope of Jesus, that that is what he has made for us. You need to know that you have a home. And the pain, the false hope, the heartache, the I'll just pretend it's okay, I must deserve it, I'll just you know say some stuff, I'll just try harder, that should make you homesick for your inheritance that's incorruptible and undefiled. So now let's continue in 1 Peter, at verse 5. That, that home is reserved in heaven for you who are kept by the power of God through faith for salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. What that says is it's God who's going to bring you to your home. It's not about you pretending it's okay, trying to get rid of the homesickness, but knowing that through faith, God is going to bring you there. That's the living hope. In this, in this hope, you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while, if need be, you have been grieved by various trials. 
Wow. I mean, that's how... It's not like we're excited to face trials, but we know these just that's making us homesick to be in a place where we won't face this anymore. And it's just a little while in the big scheme of things. That the genuineness of your faith being much more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to praise, honor, and glory at the revelation of Jesus Christ. So you're being purified like gold. The gold heats up, the impurities rise to the top, and they scrape it off. That's how you purify gold. That's what these trials are like. That's what the homesickness is. Nothing purifies us and cleanses us like going through trials. Whom, at the revelation of Jesus Christ, whom having not seen you love, though now you do not see him, yet believing, you rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory, receiving the end of your faith, the salvation of your souls. The good news is your faith is going to end one day. We put our faith in Jesus now. But it says there's an end to your faith. That's your complete salvation. Being forgiven of the penalty of sin. Being helped remove the power of sin over you. And then being removed completely from the presence of sin in your life. Your faith will end because one day you will see Jesus face to face. That's your living hope. See all this false hope in the world or that the world throws at you, it should tell you something. It should tell you that you need hope. And since you're always let down by anything you could try to put your hope into, that should tell you something else. You need hope not from this world. That's why we have a living hope. That's why it's not just knowledge about God. Yeah, there's a God somewhere out there who might care for me. We have a living hope, a God who came to us a God who lived as we lived in this world that we ruined in order to give us a place in the new one that can never be ruined because he's removed sin from us. So if you're not a Christian, you receive your inheritance by accepting it. By saying, God, I want that. So I'm going to repent from my sin. I'm going to turn from that because I need living hope. I'm going to worship you, Jesus, as Lord and Savior because only you can give that to me. For those of us who are Christians, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his abundant mercy has begotten us again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. See, it says here, we haven't seen Jesus, but we love him. We haven't seen Jesus, but we believe in him. We haven't seen Jesus, but we rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory. Let's pray. Father, thank you for giving us a living hope because of your mercy, because you've looked on us and had mercy on us and shown us grace by sending your son to be our living hope, to pay for our sin, to give us an inheritance in your kingdom. God, we pray that you would show us where we're putting false hope. We pray that you would help us heal from the hope that's let us down. And we ask for your help, that you would keep us by your power to get us to our home. God, I pray for anyone who might be listening who is not a Christian that is feeling hopeless. Lord, help them to see, open up their eyes, that they need a hope not from this world. Help them now to repent and turn from their sin and turn to you, Jesus, as Lord and Savior. And help us as Christians, God, to remember 
homesickness is a good thing. It encourages our faith and helps to remind us that we do have a home that is not here, that's been given to us by your son Jesus, in whose name we pray. Amen. You've been listening to a live teaching from the River Christian Fellowship, the home of CSN. If you'd like to hear today's teaching again, you can catch the free podcast by searching the iTunes store for the River Christian Fellowship or call us at 800-357-4226. Don't forget to catch next week's morning service at 10 a.m. Mountain Time and tune in next week for more from the River Christian Fellowship.